This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with award-winning author and academic Dr Elizabeth Tynan. Elizabeth joined me to talk about her new book, The Secret of Emu Field, Britain's Forgotten Atomic Tests in Australia. Elizabeth tells us what happened at Emu Field in South Australia in 1953. She talks of a terrifying black mist that spread across the land after the first atomic bomb detonation as part of Operation Totem. It brought death and sickness to Aboriginal people. Elizabeth describes some of the secrecy around the testing activities that still exists today. She tells us of her visit to Emu Field and the consequences of the atomic tests for Australia today. This is a slightly extended version of my conversation with Elizabeth Tynan. Please be aware that this conversation features content about Aboriginal people who have since died. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Elizabeth Tynan, who is Associate Professor in the Graduate Research School of James Cook University. She is known as an academic and a former science journalist. She has written a range of books previously that have done very well, um, received very well by the public, including Atomic Thunder, The Maralinga Story, which won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Australian History and the Chass Australia Book Prize in 2017. Elizabeth is also a former broadcaster and reporter working at the ABC and later for The New Scientist. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Elizabeth today to talk about her new book that's just been released through New South Books. It is called The Secret of Emu Field, Britain's Forgotten Atomic Tests in Australia. And uh, I welcome Liz now onto the program. Hi there, Liz. Hi, Amy. It's lovely to be here. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, I certainly have always been interested broadly in this subject matter. And as many listening will be, I was quite familiar with Maralinga and the atomic tests there, and also some of the other testing that was done overseas in the Pacific areas, the Marshall Islands, for example, and Kiribati. But as many, I'm sure, have probably told you, I was not aware of Emu Field. And uh, it seems that this book is fulfilling a really crucial need in Australia's knowledge, um, our historical knowledge, but also our scientific and technical knowledge around the atomic testing that was done at Emu Field. So I wonder if I could ask you a kind of obvious starting point, which is how did you find out or discover the Emu Field tests and what prompted you to delve so deeply into it? That's a fantastic question, Amy. I had earlier done my PhD at the ANU on aspects of the British nuclear tests and the history, but certainly um, focusing in on the kind of media response to the tests, both at the time and much later, and the two different eras around that. And from that arose my desire to write Atomic Thunder, which I did some years ago now. And after Atomic Thunder came out, I had the most wonderful deluge of responses from readers and it was terribly exciting for me to hear their experiences and their stories. And one handwritten letter arrived one day in my office at JCU from someone who had some knowledge of 
the nuclear tests. He had been quite involved in looking at the history himself. And he said that he enjoyed Atomic Thunder and he found it very interesting, but he noticed that I only mentioned fairly briefly the EMU field tests. And he said that he believed that there was more to those tests than appeared on the surface. And Atomic Thunder was very much a book about Maralinga, but I had set the scene for Maralinga by talking about EMU field, but I hadn't really gone into a lot of depth. I just sort of looked briefly at some of the records on it. But that letter from that reader really got me thinking about what had gone on there. And he had intimated in his letter that fairly nefarious things had gone on there and it was going to be worth looking at. So that really piqued my interest. I really became fascinated by these tests, which no one had ever heard about. And even now with my book coming out, people just look at me blankly when they hear the name Emu Field. No one knows about it unless they've been somehow involved. But what I discovered when I investigated Emu Field was a, a very detailed, intricate, still very secret story that has ongoing ramifications for a number of people, most particularly the Aboriginal people of that part of the world. So I just, bit by bit, and no thanks at all to the British government, I've tried to piece together this story to continue on what I was doing with Atomic Thunder, which was to try and bring this story to as wide an audience as possible. And I, I hope to do that with Emu Field as well. Yeah, well, that's amazing that you got that type of correspondence and you know, it must have been invaluable for your research, giving you some leads. And uh, it's really very obvious in the book, as you point out, just how secret Emu Field is within the British parliamentary and political system, and obviously the lack of access to documents now in the archives. I wanted to situate Emu Field and Maralinga. And for those who aren't familiar with Emu Field, would you be able to describe for us both where it is, but also why it's called Emu Field and what its physical land features are? Yes, I'd love to. I was very fortunate to be able to go there last year. Not many people can go there. It is actually part of the Woomera prohibited area still. And you have to get special permits, both from Maralinga Jarachar Council and from the Department of Defence to go there. So it is closed to the public. I went to Maralinga first, which is to the south of Emu Field. It's about just under 200 k's between Maralinga and Emu. And then I was with a group of people, including a couple of other researchers, and we travelled from Maralinga to Emu Field with the coordinator of the Oak Valley Rangers, which is a, a group of Aboriginal rangers based at the community of Oak Valley, which is a couple of hours away from Maralinga. And the Oak Valley Rangers have uh, a, a very wide brief to manage various parts of the land that are under land management uh, agreements. And so we travelled with the ranger coordinator, Shane, who was just the most amazing person I think I've ever met, who gave me quite an education. It's only 193 kilometres, as I mentioned, between Maralinga and Emu, but it's such a rough track that it takes five or five and a half hours. I think it took us five and a half hours to travel that track from Maralinga to Emu. And on the way, I got to see just the, the absolute 
beauty of this this country, the the magnificence of this place. It's desert, of course, but it's not empty at all. It's filled with very distinctive desert vegetation, mulga trees and other forms of desert vegetation. Of course, there's quite a bit of that distinctive red sand as well. The thing that got to me most, I think, was the the huge blue dome of the sky. The the sky there is huge and and the horizons are so far away. It's 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 different to anywhere else I'd ever been. And to travel there as I did with someone who was so knowledgeable about the country was uh, an extraordinary experience. Now, the reason that Emu Field was selected as the first terrestrial atomic test site in Australia, as opposed to the maritime site at Montebello Islands off Western Australia, which was where the first British test was held, but um, Emu Field was the second series of British tests. And the reason it was chosen and it was chosen by the Australian surveyor Len Bedell, was because of this amazing, flat, bright orange clay pan, which just jumps out at you when you arrive by road from Maralinga. The clay pan, which is a natural feature, was discovered by Len Bedell doing helicopter surveys of the area, looking specifically for an atomic test site. And he was told that it was necessary for it to be suitable, that there was a capability to land aircraft at any potential site. And when he found this clay pan, which is about 1.8 kilometres long, he believed and proved to be so that it was possible to land aircraft there. And in fact, what he did when he was camping there and getting the site set up, he organised for a number of Land Rovers to be delivered to the site and he welcomed the head of the British bomb-making establishment, the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, Sir William Penny, who landed at the clay pan. The way the plane was able to land was the Land Rovers were lined up on either side of the clay pan with their headlights on and their lights formed the sort of signal for the pilot to be able to land on the uh, on the clay pan. So the clay pan is very important to the story and it's the reason why this particular place was chosen. It got its name Emu Field because when Len Bedell was there with a, a small expedition of people who were assessing it for its suitability, they noticed that there was water coming up from underneath the clay and in the clay itself there were emu claw prints and so that very quickly it became known as, as Emu Field because of the, the claw prints in the, in the clay pan. Interestingly, today you do not see any emus, you do not see any kangaroos, you don't see any animals except feral camels these days in that area. And I can't know for 100% why that is, although I suspect it's what happened there that drove the animals away. But certainly at one time, it was filled with wildlife and particularly emus. So there's the clay pan and then a good 20 or so kilometres away is a lookout hill where the scientists, particularly Sir William Penny and his close colleagues, witnessed the explosions. It's a it's a rise on the plane. It's a very flat plane, but this lookout provides a, a small rise. And they stood up there to watch the two early morning 
explosions and the bombs were on towers which were roughly about six or seven kilometres away from from the lookout and 20 or more kilometres away from the clay pan. So uh, it's a fairly small site and at the time of the tests there were just mostly tents rather than permanent dwellings. There were a few metal sheds there as well and, and a mess hut that was kind of an old Mission hut, but um, mostly it was uh, tents. That's where the personnel stayed in the tents. So it had a more ephemer- ephemeral quality than Maralinga. Maralinga felt much more permanent, and even now you can still see some buildings left at Maralinga. A lot were taken down, and also at Emu Field, it was only ever able to accommodate three hundred people at a time. Whereas at Maralinga, over the time Maralinga was operational, about 35,000 people stayed there. So it has a just a, an essential difference to Maralinga. It feels like a desert mirage. And you just have to, I had to pinch myself a few times, stop and think, this is where Britain first tested bombs from towers as opposed to in the hull of a ship, which they'd done the year before. It just has this very... I don't know, evocative feeling, but it's in this most beautiful countryside and I I feel very, very privileged and I really thank Maralinga Jarajai Council for giving me the great privilege of being able to visit. And could you talk about the Aboriginal peoples who have a relationship with that area broadly? Because you write that hundreds of Aboriginal people lived to the northeast and northwest of Emu in 1953, mostly on stations, but that they also were very aware of the sources of water around that area, which was not obvious to Western or white people, white colonialists and settlers at the time, and the kind of significance of that story, the story of the Aboriginal people there, but also their relationship with the land and the water and and dingoes, for example. Yes, absolutely. You know, thousands of generations in that country had given the Aboriginal people of the area deep knowledge and connection to um, the place. The the waterholes and soaks, as they're known, were well understood by the people living in that area. And during the hunting season, which lasted around August to October, they would move around. It's very much a culture based on movement. And so they would move between waterholes. But for the rest of the year, In 1953, mostly, they were living on either missions or stations and most prominently, I suppose, to the northwest of uh, Emu was Ernabella Mission, which is an important part of the story, and then um, off to the the northeast were the the communities of Wallatina and Minterby and Granite Downs, places like that. And many hundreds of Aboriginal people lived in those, those places and Certainly those who are living around Wallatina and Granite Downs, Marlebor, Minterby, those sorts of places were in the firing line for toxins from the first test in October 1953. The people around Ernabella, around the mission there in particular, were caught up in a lot of what happened as well, not only at Emu Field but later at Maralinga. There was a, a fellow who had started his working life at Ernabella 
Walter McDougall, who went on to become what was known as the Native Patrol Officer, who's actually quite an important person to mention in this context. He was employed by the Federal Department of Supply and he was based out of Woomera, but he was charged with initially deterring Aboriginal people from the British rocket tests. And you may be aware that rocket tests were held from Woomera firing rockets across the continent since 1947. They were British tests as well. And the atomic tests later took place in what was known and still is known as the Woomera prohibited area. So initially, Walter McDougall was involved in ensuring that Aboriginal people would not be harmed by the rocket tests. And then when the atomic tests were going to be held, he was asked to do the same for that as well. He was one person in 100,000 square kilometres of territory, initially one person. He was joined later, after Emu Field, he was joined later by one other Native Patrol officer. And Walter McDougall's job in particular to begin with was to try and ensure that Aboriginal people did not go near the places where the bombs were going to be detonated. And he did his best. His heart was definitely with the Aboriginal people. He did try very hard to protect them. But it was impossible. It's an impossible job to do. And also, the people who lived at Wallatina and places like that, I mean, Walter McDougall had no way of knowing. None of them did. No one knew that it was going to be possible for the so-called black mist from the first totem explosion in 53 to actually travel across the land to, to those communities. So there was no way to warn them. And the, the tests at Emu Field were put together so quickly with so little preparation. And I've got to say the British knew virtually nothing about what they were doing. They had no idea about how to conduct a terrestrial atomic weapons test. They knew nothing about the geography or the meteorology of that part of Australia. They knew nothing about Australia. They were completely in the dark, but they went ahead anyway, even though they had no idea. They certainly didn't know about Aboriginal people's lifestyles, movement patterns, anything like that. They explicitly abrogated their responsibilities. They said that anything to do with Aboriginal people was entirely the responsibility of the Australian government. And the Australian government wasn't that much better than the British government in caring for people whose homeland this actually was. So this was Aboriginal homeland. There was no one actually living on the very small piece of land now known as Emu Field, but it was more that it was traversed by Aboriginal people who were moving between waterholes in that area. But even the Australian government, even though they did designate Walter McDougall to look after Aboriginal people's interests, they really didn't know anything themselves. There was no baseline data about health statistics, for example. At that time, Aboriginal births and deaths were not required to be legally recorded. Very little is known about the health status of people who who lived in, in those areas. And so when later it became apparent that the tests at Emu Field, particularly the first test, had caused significant harm to Aboriginal people. It was very hard to measure that harm because there were no baseline data to work from. Yeah. Let's set the scene of Operation Totem 
in its kind of totality because it was Totem 1 and Totem 2 were these major atomic bomb detonations. And then there were also detonations called kittens, which were also kind of a crucial part of it. And you outline the differences of them and what a kitten is in the book. But also you do make a lot of effort to contextualise Totem and give us the scientific understanding of these types of atomic bombs, the A-bombs as opposed to H-bombs. And there's one particular quote from the prologue which I felt was a really great summary of that, but it might just be a jumping point into it, was you say, the wrenching irony and tragedy of Operation Totem for both the Aboriginal people and the military personnel caught up in the tests were that the harm was caused in pursuit of technology that was soon to become obsolete. So as you say, the British were not only pretty poorly informed about the effects of the atomic tests on the land, on the people, how big the fallout would be, you know, all of these types of things, but they also ended up switching to another technology quite quickly afterwards. So could you tell us about the technology that the Operation Totem was based upon and I guess its significance and then perhaps the context for why Britain decided to shift to a, a totally different and new bomb technology? Absolutely, and it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating history. So just to to wind back the clock a little, to go to the very beginning of the Second World War when there was suddenly an outpouring in the physics world, particularly in Britain but elsewhere, uh, in Europe and in America as well, but just focusing on Britain for a moment, there was quite um, an outpouring of new basic physics which seemed to suggest that fission, you know, splitting the atom, was possible and it would release uh, a huge amount of energy and behind the scenes physicists were starting to ask questions about whether this could lead to a new kind of weaponry. And there were a couple of refugee physicists who were working at the University of Birmingham. They were Jewish scientists who had escaped Nazi Germany and had gone to Birmingham, which was a real centre of physics research in England at that time. And they wrote a very short but very earth-shattering memo, three pages, in which they outlined how it might be possible to control such an explosion in in a way that could create a weapon. And this memo went straight to the, the top of the British government and its implications were quickly explained by several very knowledgeable physicists, including the Australian physicist Sir Mark Oliphant, who was working at Birmingham at the time. And the implications of this new type of weapon, they uh, they galvanised the physics world before the military ever knew about it. And just as the government of Britain was finding out, very quickly the British government put in place a new research program which was given the enigmatic name of Tube Alloys which was deliberately intended to be misleading. It it sounded very boring, you know, some sort of industrial technology, tube alloys. But within that, they, with virtually no money and working in plain sight, but still with great secrecy in laboratories at various universities in the UK, they worked out some of the physics and engineering problems that might be associated with such a weapon and came to the conclusion that such a weapon was possible. 
Now, this was right at the start of the war and, and fairly soon after the war started, the Blitz began and Britain was uh, having to fend off constant bombing attacks from Nazi Germany, partly because of a letter that was sent to President Roosevelt in America, um, signed by Albert Einstein, but actually written by a couple of other physicists, including Leo Szilard. This letter gave President Roosevelt an understanding of the possibilities of a nuclear weapon. There was some consternation that the Germans had the same sorts of ideas. And in fact, just after the war started, all scientific publication of these physics experiments had to be shut down just to try and stem the flow of of technical information through to the enemy of, of the day. The upshot of all of that was that Roosevelt set up the Manhattan Project And that was the American project that had actually had its beginnings in tube alloys in in Britain, but the project was going to be carried to fruition in America, which was a much safer place to do that kind of research. Also, of course, America had huge resources and huge numbers of scientists. But Britain, through a very carefully negotiated agreement between Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt, They agreed terms through the Quebec Agreement, it was called, on how Britain could contribute to the development of the bomb. And so once that agreement was organised, a mission of British scientists and technologists went across the Atlantic to America to work on the Manhattan Project. And it was led by a brilliant mathematical physicist called William Penny, And he had a couple of PhDs. He was uh, incredibly intelligent, bright, smart, knowledgeable person. And he was accompanied by a, a lot of other scientists as well. What they didn't know at that time, in the ranks of the British mission were several spies, that these were physicists who, for ideological reasons, believed that this knowledge should not be kept secret, that it should actually be shared so that everyone could have it. And they did share it quite freely with the Soviet Union. As you know, the Manhattan Project succeeded in creating a weapon. A particular design was dropped on Hiroshima in August of 1945. And then a short time later, a bomb of a different design was dropped on Nagasaki. Now, William Penny was centrally involved in this and he was expecting after the war ended, and of course those two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki did herald the end of the war in the Pacific. And Penny believed that he would go on cooperating, working with the Americans. They would continue to develop this technology. However, one of the spies was uncovered, a British spy called Alan Nunn-May, was uncovered in 1946 and went to prison. And as a direct result of the uncovering of that particular spy, who was actually quite low level and didn't really share particularly useful information, but because of that, the Americans, some would say cynically, used it as an opportunity to enact legislation that made it illegal for America to work with any other country on nuclear weapons development. So the McMahon Act came in in 1946 and suddenly William Penny, who'd been working with them in the Pacific, he was thrown out and uh, he came back to England. There was much consternation in the upper reaches of the British government at this point because they had been blindsided by this legislation, by the McMahon Act. They had to make a decision about whether they would just hope that one day down the track America would share its knowledge or whether they, Britain, would go it alone and develop their own weapon. 
So you could just say that um, what happened in Australia at the atomic test sites, there's a direct causal link right back to the McMahon Act that pushed Britain out of the American test projects. And they then spent a short time, maybe six months or so, trying to work out whether or not it was feasible for them to build their own bomb. They had all the expertise that had come back with Penny and and his colleagues from America, from Nevada and New Mexico, and they made a decision in, in January of 1947 that they would build their own bomb. Now, Penny was quite a creative scientist. He fairly quickly started work on his British bomb design, a fission weapon, which came to be known as Blue Danube. And it was rather similar to the plutonium device that was dropped on Nagasaki. So the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was quite different. It was a uranium-based fuel, but it was plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb. And that is what William Penny worked on with his Blue Danube design. Now, initially, it was Penny's wish that Britain try to establish some sort of agreement with America that they would be able to test at the American sites. But then another spy was uncovered, (laughs) a far more serious spy, Klaus Fuchs, uncovered in early 1950. And that was the end of any suggestion of the British being able to test Blue Danube at the American sites. And so they looked all around the place. They very seriously considered Canada. In fact, Canada was much more attractive to them than Australia, largely because Canada had been quite involved in the Manhattan Project and had quite a bit of existing knowledge. And scientists who were up to speed on how to to work in such a project And the site was going to be Churchill, which is in Manitoba, I think, in the sort of Arctic regions of Canada. But when the Canadians realised what was going to happen to their territory, they said no. And so then Britain continued looking all through the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, Caribbean. They even briefly looked at Scotland and other parts of British Isles. That was shut down very quickly because politically it was unacceptable to expose British civilians to harm. Perfectly okay to subject other civilians in other countries to harm, but um, couldn't do that in Britain. Finally, they, uh, they decided that it would have to be Australia for various reasons. And they contacted the then Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, contacted our new Prime Minister then at that stage, Robert Menzies, who didn't consult his cabinet, but he agreed to the first British test. And in the meantime, William Penny and his team of scientists and technologists and engineers were working flat out at their base at Aldermaston in in England to perfect the design. And as I said, it was rather similar to the Nagasaki bomb, but it did have other features that William Penny had created that made it more effective, if you can talk about atomic weapons in, in that way. So his design was very much drawn out of the Manhattan Project, but refined from there. So at the Montebello Islands in October of 1952, the very first British test took place and it was a Blue Danube bomb. It was about 25 kilotons, which was quite a bit, nearly double, not quite double the explosive strength of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So it was a significantly large weapon. And it was a great success. It was exploded in the hull of a ship because the British were very interested in what would happen 
if there was a nuclear war that was based on the maritime environment. And it was kind of a Rolls-Royce device. It had all the bells and whistles. It had plutonium-239, a particular isotope of plutonium that was the ideal fuel for a nuclear weapon. Uh, It performed extremely well. William Penny was knighted overnight. (laughs) He received his knighthood immediately. Um, Mind you, the British government had drawn up several different alternative announcements to make, depending on whether the uh, thing had worked or not, and depending on whether the people there were killed or not. So it was a great success. But during that time, Britain was still recovering from the war. It had virtually no money. It was doing all of this on the cheap. And it was about to switch reactors from wind scale, which created the weapons-grade plutonium that was used in the Blue Danube device at Operation Hurricane at Montebello. It was switching to another reactor called Calder Hall, which was going to be for both weapons and reactor-grade plutonium. So it was going to be for civilian nuclear energy as well as nuclear weapons, and it was going to change the composition of the nuclear fuel. And it was going to be lesser quality, and it would include more of a different isotope of plutonium known as plutonium-240, which could potentially make the bomb rather unpredictable. So what they wanted to do with Totem, it was a comparative test There were two bombs and they wanted to test differing proportions of this new type of nuclear fuel to see whether it would actually work. They didn't know. And the weapons that were designed for Totem were versions of Blue Danube, but they were very much smaller in terms of their explosive yield. Mind you, they completely miscalculated the explosive yield, so they got it completely wrong in the event Totem 1 was 9.1 kilotons, which is quite a bit less than Hurricane at 25 kilotons, and Totem 2 was about 7.1, so it was smaller again. The British were actually quite worried that the Australians would think less of them because these bombs were smaller, but they needed to be smaller to understand the physical properties of this fuel. And just as an aside, just quickly, it turns out, and I don't have access to all the technical details, but... I don't think the fuel actually worked, didn't actually perform as they wanted because the actual nuclear weapons that they deployed ended up with a different nuclear fuel. And Blue Danube, the bomb that they tested, became obsolete in 1958. It was withdrawn from service. Between Operation Totem in 53 and the next British test series in 1956, the British government made a political decision to go with hydrogen weapons, which were very much more powerful, and that would require quite different forms of testing. So what they did at Emu Field really came to nothing. And that, to me, is, you know, it's just so ironic and so tragic that so many people were hurt in the pursuit of something that was very quickly useless anyway. Yeah. And you point out in the book that hydrogen bombs weren't detonated in Australia. So we were talking pretty much always about these particular bombs that were utilised in South Australia. And um, one of the chapter's title is Towards a British Austerity Bomb, 
which probably explains a bit in terms of the fact that they were really trying to save money, as you've intimated, and create the largest number of bombs for the materials that they had in order to stockpile them and create a security, some form of security against a threat, a looming threat, which was the Soviet Union at the time. And as you point out, um, the Soviet Union had already detonated their own atomic bombs. So there was a kind of, it seems like an arms race going on, which the UK was really doing by itself, given that they were excluded by the United States. But it was really interesting to see that, um, in particular, the Australian government was included, but only to a certain degree. And that also it was their responsibility to inform the Aboriginal Australian population at the time uh, of what was going to happen to some degree, and that the British government essentially had washed their hands of any responsibility towards Aboriginal people. And you quote throughout the book a number of quotes, really, from not only the time, like documentation of the time, but also even statements at the Royal Commission into atomic testing in Australia. And I wonder if you could comment on that attitude that was held by the British towards the Aboriginal population, but also just the general attitude of responsibility or a lack of responsibility towards the environment, human health, all kinds of implications, effects that these atomic bombs might have, it seemed that there was this complete apathy towards the potential consequences. Yes. One of the striking things when you're researching this area is how low down the list of priorities was safety for the British. (laughs) They were not focused on safety at all and they certainly weren't interested in what Australia might have been concerned about, you know, the fact that fallout came all the way to Townsville, where I now live, for example, that was of no interest to them. Um, The fallout from the Maralinga bombs went all over the place, you know, to Adelaide and and Melbourne and, and up to Darwin, all over the place. Part of the reason, I think, was that it was an arms race and they were well behind America and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had built and tested a bomb in 1949 thanks to the efforts of Klaus Fuchs and the other spies. And Britain was therefore third in the world to get atomic weapons and it felt its lack of resources. So, yes, they had set a target of at least 50 atomic weapons, but they had virtually no uranium oxide from which you make plutonium. They were changing their reactor infrastructure. They had to do some really dodgy, tweaky sort of things in their reactors to try and get enough nuclear fuel out. The Clement Attlee government, followed by the Winston Churchill government, had hidden most of the cost of this in the um, national accounts, so it wasn't obvious at all how much they were spending. But in the, the early years of the program, it was £100 million in those years pounds it would be billions and billions in today's money so it was a really stupid thing to do really the cost of it the lack of infrastructure and knowledge and also the very cavalier approach that they had to safety which means that even today you know the nuclear test veterans association in britain they are still trying to get at least recognition for the dangers to which military veterans were were put. In Australia, at least, 
some administrative compensation and, and in fact, one lot of compensation from a court case has been paid out and Aboriginal people have also received compensation. But in Britain, no such compensation. But Britain had a, a very, very lax attitude towards safety and they were also you know, strangely disconnected from Australia. They weren't that keen to involve Australia. For Totem, they did allow what were known as observers. So there were three observers, one of whom was British, but he was working at the Australian National University. He was quite a controversial figure called Ernest Titterton. He was the so-called observer who had the most insider knowledge about what the bombs entailed far more than the other two. So another one was Leslie Martin, who was a, a physicist from University of Melbourne, who was also a defence science advisor to the government. And the third uh, observer was Alan Butement, who was um, the chief scientist for the Commonwealth Department of Supply. Both Martin and Butement were not given privileged information or very little. So Titterton was really the only one who was given more central information. He and Martin actually were asked to advise on safety. Everything about the tests was channeled through Titterton and Martin, you know, between the Australian government and the British government. There was very little other contact between them. And Titterton in particular, I think Martin was a little bit more sceptical about what the British were doing, but Titterton was a true believer some people called him Dr. Strangelove and some people say that he was pretty gung-ho himself. Well, I, I think from the evidence he was pretty gung-ho about safety issues. So the British were doing this by the seat of their pants, on a shoestring, smell of an oily rag, not that interested in safety issues, didn't know anything at all about Australian Aboriginal people, weren't that interested. They were strangely incurious about them. They didn't seem to ask many questions and want to know any answers. And the Australian government were not very much better, unfortunately, at that time. So all the elements were there for an absolute disaster. And that is what happened. It was a disaster, particularly for Aboriginal people of the Western Desert. Yeah. And one of the things that, well, there are many things that are quite striking about the totem detonations. You point out that the atomic cloud kept its shape for longer than Totem 2, so this is Totem 1, and was visible as a coherent mushroom shape for up to 24 hours, which to me is quite mind-boggling because, you you know, when you think of something going off, you assume that it might dissipate after a couple of hours. So there's that difference between Totem 1 and Totem 2. But there are also other differences that you highlight. One of them in particular is the black mist phenomenon that occurred with Totem 1 and that is something which the Royal Commission testimony really highlighted and which you quote quite extensively. So I wonder could you take us through those differences between the two detonations of, of those Totem 1 and Totem 2 and the significance of the black mist and that black glass type substance that ended up featuring on the ground and that's still there present today? Absolutely, yes. So Totem 1 and Totem 2 were held 12 days apart. The meteorological conditions were extremely different for both. So Totem 2 just went flying up into the atmosphere and, and disappeared as a mushroom cloud very quickly. But Totem 1 maintained its coherent shape and, in fact, was seen by some civilians in an aircraft, <laughs> um, much to the embarrassment of the test authorities. 
So on both occasions, although they were quite different meteorological conditions, both sets of meteorological conditions were unsuitable for atomic testing. So they were both carried out in unsuitable conditions something that was finally grudgingly agreed to by William Penny when he sat in the witness box many years later at the Royal Commission. Even the test authority's own manual, a a manual that had been developed by meteorologists and others to determine suitable conditions for atomic testing, they went against the requirements of that, that manual. The manual itself was inadequate in many ways, but it would have been better if they had heeded it and not tested on those particular days, 15th and the 27th of October. On the 15th of October, Totem 1, it was seen even by some of the media who were at the clay pan who witnessed it, some of them noticed a strange phenomenon of part of the mushroom cloud kind of breaking away. We still don't understand this completely, which is why I titled that chapter The Unknowable Black Mist. But what we do know is that about five hours after the totem blast at 7am in communities 170 kilometres to the northeast of Emu Field at Wallatina, Minterbee and places like that, Aboriginal and other populations there noticed the arrival of a sticky, greasy, black fog, unlike anything they'd ever seen before. Now, these were people who were very used to the physical conditions of their environment, but they had never seen anything like it. Unlike a dust storm, which you could just brush the dust and the sand off whatever it uh, had landed on, this was actually sticking to things. It was black and greasy and sticky. Some people said that it smelled like a dead kangaroo and other people said it smelled like kerosene. And it landed on the trees and it sort of stuck to the bark and all these trees that often would have honey on them that people would eat um, became suddenly sinister and dangerous. The black mist caused illness. It almost certainly caused death, although we don't have the baseline data. Once again, we don't have figures exactly on what happened. We have a great deal of anecdotal evidence about the effect of the black mist on those populations. Many people were, um, they suffered rashes and nausea and vomiting and eye conditions. One of the most famous of the survivors was a child at the time, Yami Lester, he was about 12, and he later became completely blind and became a a very strong voice and advocate. And in fact, his advocacy was among the, the factors that led to the Royal Commission. He actually went with his lawyer to London with evidence that he presented in, uh, to various ministries responsible. And this started to get into the media and ultimately the Royal Commission. There were other factors as well, but this was one of the factors. But the black mist has got several hypotheses attached to it. A fairly recent scientific study of the black mist by scientists from Arpanza, which is the Australian Radiation uh, regulator, they did uh, a bit of a survey of available evidence. It was fairly inconclusive what they came up with, but they did have a few possible explanations. And one of them that I find particularly interesting is that both the tests were conducted by hoisting the bomb assemblies onto steel towers. And the steel contained an isotope of cobalt, cobalt 59. But upon detonation of the weapon and through a physical process, 
cobalt 60 was produced out of um, the detonation and cobalt 60 is extremely radioactive and extremely dangerous and toxic and so there's some suggestion that it was cobalt 60 that caused the devastation from the black mist there are other possibilities as well that it was rather than radio radioactivity it was chemical toxicity there was some suggestion that the bomb set off or Totem 1 in particular set a fire which created toxic smoke. There are various explanations, but no one knows for sure. So it's one of those those great mysteries. I would love the British to open the files properly. Hardly any files are available these days so that we can perhaps delve a bit deeper into the reasons for the black mist. And, you know, the black mist phenomenon is not completely unknown when it comes to atomic testing and in fact use of atomic weaponry I I believe that in the wake of the Hiroshima bombing people noticed a black rain or black mist soon after that too so it does seem to have some association with atomic testing and use of atomic weaponry the black glass is known as trinitite and that was caused by the fact that both the totem weapons particularly Totem 1, it was hotter than Totem 2, they produced temperatures greater than the surface of the sun upon detonation. And so they turned the sand and the limestone to glass. And it's still there. It's like someone's taken a crate of old black bottles and smashed them up around the ground zero. The glass is mildly radioactive. You wouldn't want to spend too much time with it. It's not dangerous to hold it. But as the cleanup experts who later made a report about it, among other things, said that you'd have to get pliers and snip at the glass and inhale its products for some time for you to have any bad effect. But the fact is that it's a radioactive material that is just lying around the ground at Emu Field at both ground zeros. At Maralinga, it's there too, but it's green at Maralinga. It's like green bottles have been smashed up. But it's uh, it's a fascinating but also rather sinister feature of of the landscape at both sites now. Indeed. I really was struck by one of the stories particularly, and this was from Yami Lester, and it was a story that was republished by the Bulletin in Australia under the title Forgotten Victims of the Rolling Black Mist. And I just wanted to read out a quote because it just kind of was quite evocative for me um, and illustrates what you've just been saying about his testimony, but also the others as well. He said, I looked up south and saw this black smoke rolling through the mulga. It just came at us through the trees like a big black mist. The old people started shouting, it's a mamu, an evil spirit. They dug holes in the sand dune and said, get in here, you kids. We got in and it rolled over and around us and went away. Everyone was vomiting and had diarrhea and people were laid out everywhere. Next day, people had very sore eyes, red with tears, and I could not open my eyes. Five days after the black cloud came, the old people started dying. And I believe, you know, even some of Lester's own family had died quite almost immediately after the situation. And I know you point out that it's hard to make a direct, prove a direct causation between the two, but it seems that the evidence at the Royal Commission, as you say, the anecdotal evidence was quite abundant and it seems almost too coincidental really. Yes, no one these days denies that the black mist occurred and that it harmed people. 
the the difficulty I suppose these days is knowing precisely what was in the blacklist, and I I can't say for sure that that we do know. There is a meteorological condition that a meteorologist identified afterwards that would certainly support the idea of a black mist uh, arising from uh, an atomic weapons test cloud. So I, I just think it would be really good if, if the British government would actually let scientists have a look at the technical data, from particularly from Totem 1. We're not allowed to look at anything, though. They withdrew all the files in 2018. So, Yeah, that's the really interesting part is that some of it was available and then it was taken away. It was. It's absolutely outrageous. So a lot of the files were became available after the Royal Commission in the mid-80s and then bit by bit they were, with some bits were withdrawn in the, in the early 90s and then there was a mass withdrawal in 2018 they're still unavailable, those files. So you can't get files at the British archives now on any aspect of the British tests. And I don't know why that happened. No one does. It just might be that, you know, there's been a bit more activity from the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association for recognition. Certainly people, you know, nosy people like me, historians, are looking a bit harder at what the British did. And then I had actually put in a freedom of information request not long before the mass withdrawal. And I don't know whether that's a causal link or not, but uh, certainly Mm. suddenly, without any warning overnight, those files were were withdrawn. So I think it's, I don't know whether others agree with me, but I think it's pretty outrageous that a foreign power was able to come in, do terrible harm to our people and our country, and they're not under any obligation to reveal what they actually did and what was in you know, the toxic residues of their tests. So I would uh, hope that by the time I come to write my next book about the British tests, that um, maybe those files will reopen. Who knows? Or maybe some clever person who copied some of the files before they were withdrawn might be able to hand some to you. I was just, you know, dreaming that maybe someone was smart enough to make notes or, you know, do it well, earlier. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly comment, Amy, but um, but that may have already happened. I would love that. That sounds like a great thing. That's why I love the the historical community. Now, Liz, one thing that was striking to me was also the military personnel, which we won't get into too much detail about, but I wanted to just address the atomic tank that you talk about and also the involvement of the RAF and the RAAF because they were also involved in the tests and there was definitely individual risk involved in that to varying degrees as well as the personnel who later drove one of the tanks that was at the site, away from the site. I wonder if you could just tell us about some of the really interesting elements to that and the types of personal risk they were taking by putting themselves basically within a a kind of bomb zone or a radiation zone that was still very potent. It wasn't, it was still within, in some cases, 90 minutes, in some cases, a few days. Yes. So um, everyone who was at the site and particularly those who went into the last zone were at great risk. The atomic tank, that was a centurion tank, which cost the Australian government a lot of money, £25,000 at that time, a lot of money. That was used as a uh, to test what would happen 
to a military tank during a, a weapons atomic weapons test. There were no personnel inside it. They had dummies and what are known as film badges to try and determine the dose of radiation. They worked out from those film badges that any crew would have died almost immediately if they'd been in that tank. And the tank was driven. <laughs> it was across country, taken back and ended up at um, Pakapunyul. And from there it went to Vietnam. So it was actually deployed to Vietnam. It was cleaned up a bit before it went to Vietnam, but the, but whoever drove it from Emu Field to, to Woomera was certainly exposed and that was that was brought out in the Royal Commission. So that's quite an extraordinary story that the atomic tank later became part of the Vietnam War story as well. As for the, the pilots and the ground crew, oh, some of those stories still give me goosebumps, um, particularly the Royal Air Force, the British Canberra plane that was flown out from England with three crew on board. They um, Their job was to fly. They were told to fly into both clouds. They ended up only flying into the first one because it was so dangerous that they were grounded for the second bomb. But they only six minutes after detonation, they flew the Canberra into the cloud where it was buffeted around um, by the turbulence. It was extremely turbulent. Um, they only they ha- they were wearing oxygen masks, but they their cabin was only sealed with um, what do they call it dope and sellotape, <laughs> mm. and they had radiation measuring devices that registered unbelievably high uh, rates of radiation for a fairly short time before they exited the cloud. They were at huge risk. They were incredibly brave. They could have lost all their instrumentation. They could easily have crashed. Um, that there's a whole chapter on that in my book because I, I just think the bravery, not just of the Canberra crew, but there were many RAAF crew and, and ground crew as well. Ground crew were actually at greater risk because they were often working on the contaminated planes without any protection at all for hours. And um, many of them later did become desperately ill and died young. And, you know, there are some pretty sad stories in, in the book about what, what happened to the military personnel as well. And a lot of times, apart from the Canberra crew, the British crew, who were very informed about what they were doing because one of their crew members was a radiologist, but most of the other crews were not informed and they didn't really know the risks that they were being subjected to. And I think that is also a, a, a great shame on both the British and the Australian governments. Yeah. And In terms of the tests, I know that there was so much secrecy around it, as you point out throughout the book. When did the public really fully understand what had actually happened at Emu Field and Maralinga? Well, uh, I suppose the Royal Commission was a big turning point, and that was in 1984-85, and it did receive quite a bit of media attention and quite a bit was made of it. But I have to say that although the Royal Commission was, I think, an extraordinary Royal Commission. It did so much to open the secrets, but there was still quite a bit that was still to be uncovered. And that there was more information that came out in the 1990s. And my colleague, new scientist Ian Anderson, was one of the journalists who was very important in uncovering some of the deceit of the British, the fact that they knew how much plutonium contamination was at Maralinga. So just thinking now about Maralinga, which was highly contaminated by plutonium, but they actively 
prevented the Australian government from knowing about it. I mean, an emu field has never been really prominent. It, obviously, it was dealt with in the Royal Commission and there was quite a bit about it, but Maralinga got most of the headlines rather mm. than emu field. So emu field is, is very hidden. It's still very hidden, I think, but I'm hoping that my book might open it up for, for people to see what went on there. No, absolutely. It's such a brilliant book and so beautifully researched and written. Just finally, the cleanup that happened or didn't happen, you say in the final chapter that there was a much more extensive cleanup program at Maralinga, and this is actually well into the 1990s now. So, you know, nearly 30 to 40 years have passed since these tests have occurred. What was the situation at Emu Field? Because as you say, those little bits of glass are still there. And I wonder how much cleanup was actually done and rehabilitation of the land. Very little. There was a certain budget set aside for Emu Field, a very, very tiny proportion of the Maralinga budget, but even that wasn't spent. Maralinga was much worse. You know, the contamination at Maralinga was worse because of particular tests that were held at Maralinga called Vixen B, which were just so toxic, and they weren't held at Emu Field. But Emu Field certainly did have some residual radioactive contamination, but it was just basically left alone. And and you mentioned before the kitten sites, the, the non-nuclear but still very toxic, well, non-nuclear in that they didn't have fission reactions, but they did use uranium and mm. um, polonium and also a non-radioactive element called beryllium. In fact, to this day, we don't even know where one of those sites was. You know, they were, And the Australian government didn't know about those kittens tests. The British government didn't ask permission to run those tests and never really told the Australian government where exactly they were held and what they involved. So, no, Emu Field was just kind of left there. I, I don't want people to get the idea, though, that it was as bad as Maralinga because it wasn't. But it was certainly, it was just considered to be so far out of sight, out of mind that, you know, no one would live there and, you know, it just wasn't an issue, I don't think. And yes, the cleanup was only finished in 2000. So it is relatively recent compared to the the tests. But um, yeah, there's still some residual radioactivity. I wasn't worried going there because I knew that you'd have to spend quite a bit of time at Emu Field before you would be harmed by the radioactivity that remains there but no one can actually live there anymore you you can only stay for a brief time and we were only actually at the site for maybe two or three hours I suppose then we made the five and a half hour drive back all in one day it was quite a big day that day yeah absolutely and driving at 40 kilometers an hour as you point out on some of those roads There are some great photos of you out there in your conversation article, which I'll link to for people to look at the site uh, and you inspecting the site as well. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us and telling us so much of what we don't know about Emu Field and me having not known anything about it. I was just really quite astounded. And I guess the the overwhelming impression that I'm left with is that perhaps it really is time to become a republic. Oh, yes, please. Yes. (laughs) When you look at what old colonial powers do to former colonies, I think it's more than time we became a republic. Thank you for your interest, Amy. It's been great talking to you. And you, Liz, thank you so much for writing this book. I've just been speaking with Elizabeth Tynan and we have been talking about her brilliant book, The Secret of Emu Field, Britain's Forgotten Atomic Tests in Australia. It is out through New South Books. 
I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.